0: Hello, I'm Ali, and this is Insight, and this is the first time recording since I was actually sitting there with you, Charlie, at CrimeCon, and it does make me sad all over again, but how are you?
1: I'm good. I, you know, also miss CrimeCon. It was an amazing weekend. It was super, super exhausting, but it was amazing. Yes, Meeting other podcasters, other content creators, and listeners really motivated me. So I've been like knocking out a lot more work <laughs> since we've come back because it <laughs> was just so motivating to just keep going.
0: I think I had somewhat of a post Crime Con sadness. I really hated leave, leaving everyone. I think we were the last ones to leave. My life, as you know it, Charlie, it's been crazy stressful this year, but Crime Con was definitely a highlight. And we've already booked up for next year to go to Nashville, so uh, those tickets are on sale now. And it has made me book another stateside trip. So for those in the San Francisco area, I'll be representing Insight with a meet-up with the Ladies of Misconduct and Esther from Once Upon a Crime. The meet-up will be July 15 at 2pm at the Keystone in San Francisco. Just head to our Facebook page for more information. This week's episode is one of the coldest of all cold cases from almost 120 years ago. And it was a listener suggestion from Josh. So thank you, Josh. On December 26, 1898, which is Boxing Day in Australia, a young man named Michael Murphy, he was shot dead, and his two sisters, Nora and Ellen, they were raped, then brutally murdered. The horse that was pulling the carriage, which they were travelling home in, he was also shot through the forehead. The bodies of the Murphys were found the following day in a paddock alongside the roadway between the town and their home. And then two weeks before this, on December 10, 15-year-old Alfred Hill, he was reported missing by his parents. He was last seen riding his pony from his home to visit his aunt and uncle in a nearby town. But then 11 days after the Murphys were found murdered, on December 7, 1899, I mean, obviously the community was at a loss because these kinds of crimes were uncommon. Not just uncommon, they didn't happen in the late 1800s Australia. But Alfred's body was found in a bush about 40 miles from Gatton. Alfred was also found along a highway, hidden in a bush with a gully full of water, There was also the remains of a fire, which investigators thought might have been a camping spot recently. Not far away from Alfred, they found his pony, still saddled up, and also shot through the forehead. So a bit of information about Gatton before we start. Gatton is a small farming community, which is about 25 miles east from Toowoomba in southeast Queensland, Australia. And in the late 1800s, Gatton was a busy social town. There was a large number of immigrants with a lot of children, so there was a lot for kids to do. There were sports, dog racing was popular, there were dances and competitive needlework and cooking competitions. It was quite a close-knit community. Unfortunately, there were also some problems. Mobs of up to 20 or more young men, they would travel in packs by horseback and they would attack people generally those coming home from the local pub at night. Bridges and buildings in Gatton were damaged and vandalised. And from what I've read, it seemed that the police turned a blind eye to this kind of violence, which didn't help and I would imagine encouraged this illegal behaviour more. And before we get more into the story, a word from our sponsor this week, Blue Apron.
1: Recently, I did something a little different with Blue Apron. I sent a box to someone else. I have an aspiring teenage chef in my life, and he loves to cook for his family. His mom doesn't want to buy a whole big jar of a spice that he only needs a tablespoon of when they're not even sure they'll ever use it again. Blue Apron sends exactly what you need, and not just that, the exact amount you need. So they're reducing food waste. A meal I'm looking forward to that's coming in my box is seared chicken and creamy pasta salad, with summer squash and sweet peppers. That sounds like the perfect summer meal. Every week you can customize your own recipes based on your preferences. Blue Apron has special delivery options so you can choose what fits your needs. Best of all, especially in the summer when people may be traveling, there's no weekly commitment. You only get the deliveries when you want them. Each meal comes with step-by-step, easy to follow recipe cards. Blue Apron's Freshness Guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash site. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash site, S-I-G-H-T, Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So let's talk a little bit about the Murphys first. The parents in this family were Mary Holland and Daniel Murphy. They had both fled poverty in Ireland in the 1860s, separately, and arrived in Queensland. We can't even scratch the surface of Irish emigration in the 19th century here, but these two had a pretty typical story. They were impoverished Catholics with limited, though slowly increasing rights in Ireland. Due to this, they were devout to their faith but they also brought with them a deep distrust and even an outright hatred of the English and of Protestants. In the year we're talking about, 1898, the Murphys had 10 children, six boys and four girls, and they ranged in ages between 31 and 13. We're only focusing on a few of them for our story tonight. The first is Michael Murphy, who's been described as handsome and well-liked. He was 29 years old and not married. Having grown up as one of the older kids in a large farming family, he was a hard worker. He worked at a local farm in Toowoomba and volunteered part-time for the mounted infantry. Second is Nora, who was 27 years old and also unmarried. You could say she was the one in charge at home She ran the household, organized the day-to-day runnings of the home. Even though the children at this point were all at least teenagers and most were adults, she was still basically running the home. But she loved doing it and that's what she did. Third is Teresa who went by her middle name, Ellen. She was 18 years old and she was also unmarried. She had left school at 16 years old and was still finding her place in the world and her place even in the family, but she was described as an exceptionally bright and likable teen. The family lived in a rented farm six miles south of Gatton. The parents, who arrived in Australia as impoverished immigrants, had built up their life and their family. They were financially comfortable, and they were well-respected within their community.
0: Now, back to what you were saying before about the parental Murphy's religious views, Their eldest child, Polly, she had recently married a Protestant named William McNeil. And to make matters worse, two months after the wedding, Polly gave birth to a child. Now, I'd say it's a fair call that everyone here knows the birds and the bees and how long it takes to grow a baby. So Polly was excommunicated from her family for a while due to bringing shame to the family for not only marrying a Protestant, but also having sex before marriage. Then two years after the baby was born, and not long after the birth of Polly's second child, a tragedy hits. Officially, it's believed that Polly suffered from a stroke or another severe injury that was caused from falling out of bed. And this caused a permanent disability where she couldn't walk. She was paralysed down the left side of her body. But because of this, the Murphys put all their negative thoughts aside and took the family in. And when I say family... It wasn't Polly's husband. William was not welcomed into the family home. They accepted that he had to come for weekly, weekend visits with the children, but he wasn't allowed to stay overnight. Now, William McNeil was a butcher whose shop was across the street from the farm that Michael worked in, and he ran it with his brother George. But after Polly's accident, and when she was still in hospital recovering, in November 1989, the brothers left to go get some supplies for the following day, and then around 7pm, which was about an hour after they left, George returned to find the shop on fire. When the investigators looked through the remains, they found a barrel of a rifle and a couple of spent rifle cartridges. Now, even though there was a lot of suspicion that it was possibly George being responsible of the fire, there was a considerable Insurance payout.
1: Michael Murphy and William McNeil were probably on the worst terms of all the family. Michael was the one who knew William best because, like Allie said, the families had been estranged. So they had only fairly recently met William for the first time, except because Michael was living near them. They knew each other. And there was more than one occasion of violence between them. This was causing tension within the family leading up to the Christmas season. Christmas Eve was that Saturday and all the family members were returning home from their different holiday responsibilities to spend time with the family. There was some significant effort for Michael and William to just not cross paths on this night, but that's not really easy in addition to the Murphy parents, and all of their children. William was there, as well as the two grandchildren. We're talking probably 15 people in this house, so there wasn't a lot of space to avoid each other. On Christmas Day, the whole family, except for Polly and her children, went to Mass. And they didn't all go together. They tended to go off in a group at a time at different times during the day. And so all of that is just leading up to the crime. Before we go any further, we need to take a quick break for our last sponsor of the day, ZipRecruiter.
0: Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Finding great talent can be tough. Thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job, better than anyone else. That's what makes ZipRecruiter different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't rely on job candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter find a quality job candidate in just 24 hours. There is no juggling emails or calls to your office. You simply screen, rate and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy to use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, Insight listeners can post jobs to ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ziprecruiter.com site. That's ziprecruiter.com site. One more time, to try it for free, go to ziprecruiter.com site.
1: On Boxing Day, which is December 26th, the younger members of the Murphy family went to the horse races. Michael and Ellen reportedly rode their horses, with Michael actually planning on racing one of his. William McNeil took his sulky with his wife Polly riding in it. Polly was actually pretty ill at this time, as we've discussed, so this had to have been a pretty taxing day for her. There's some minor discrepancy as to if Nora was with them or not, but it's likely she was, and so she would have also ridden with her sister. There was some teasing of Ellen that she was waiting for a guy named Mick. There was a young man named Michael Porter that was fond of her and had offered her a ride on numerous occasions. It's been said that although the Murphy children were all unmarried except for Polly, it wasn't for a lack of suitors in general. But apparently Ellen's heart lie with another boy, a gardener named Simon, and he was going to be playing at the dance that she had organized on Christmas Eve.
0: When they were there, they all went their separate ways. About 11 o'clock, a 24-year-old man named Tom O'Brien, and he went by Joe or Joseph, which was his middle name. He approached Ellen and Nora, who were there with a friend of theirs, Willie Connolly. O'Brien had taken a liking to Ellen as well and was known to have told his friends that he wanted to have sex with her. Ellen was forbidden to have any interaction with O'Brien because of his bad reputation. Now, O'Brien had a criminal record. When he was 17, he was convicted of a larceny. Then when he was 22, he was charged with inflicting grievous bodily harm on a man. But then this this whole thing got messy because O'Brien then had this other man charged with a similar charge. Regardless of all these charges from both parties, everything was dropped due to lack of evidence, but that didn't restore any confidence in the Murphy family in that they wanted their daughter mixing with him. The rest of the race day went on without any incident. Michael's horse didn't win. It got second, which annoyed him, but everything seemed uneventful besides. Willie and Ellen came back together, and they got home sometime between 6 and 630 Willie had asked Ellen if she was going to the dance later that night, and she said she wasn't sure. That was probably most likely because her mother had yet given her permission to go. Everyone else arrived home within the hour because they were definitely attending the Gatton dance. Now in the end, Ellen was given permission to go to the dance at her insistence. Her mother didn't want either girls to go actually, but She only ended up agreeing if Michael stayed with them the whole night, and they all got dressed up in the normal dance garb of the late 1800s, and they left about 8 o'clock to go to the dance, and it would take them about an hour to get there by carriage.
1: The rest of the family entertained themselves that evening. McNeil was in charge of his two young children, and he was seen on numerous occasions throughout the night by people in the home. One of the Murphy girls, Katie, saw him going to his bedroom with the youngest child, probably about 9, 9.30. And then she went into his room to get the table lamp sometime between 11 and midnight, and he was there asleep in bed. Polly says she does not remember what time her husband came to bed that night because she was already in bed when he did. But she did say he did come to bed. She said he kept his clothes on, though, and didn't actually get into the bed, you know, like under the blankets in bed. He just was laying on top.
0: But then again, we're talking about the middle of summer in southeast Queensland. I imagine it would be very warm, which kind of makes sense to me that he wouldn't get under a blanket.
1: Right. I agree. And like Ali said, it was warm. So the windows were left open and there was no mosquito netting or screening of the windows. Daniel Murphy said he doesn't remember what time McNeil went to bed either. He went to bed around 11 or 12 himself. At some point, he heard one of the children cry after he was in bed, quote unquote, a good time. So who knows how long that was? He'd estimate that it was probably two in the morning. Now, it is, is made a big deal in contemporary news articles that no one had a conversation or even spoke to McNeil. And that maybe that's proof that he might not have been there that night. He possibly could have left the house anytime during the night through one of the windows in his room. But if that was the case, why would the Murphy family lie for him and say he was there off and on as they saw him? And also, who has conversations at two in the morning in in a house when everyone's going to bed? So I don't know why him not having conversations with people in the midnight hours stood out to anybody.
0: And McNeil wasn't exactly their favorite person in the world. I can imagine him being there and no one talking to him anyway.
1: (laughs) That is a very good point.
0: So as for the dance, as I said, it would have taken the Murphys about an hour to get there. At the dance hall, the last train arrived at 8.30, and then it was realized that, look, no one was going to attend. So the dance was canceled. Now, obviously we're talking about the late 1800s here. It wasn't like the organizers could call the Murphys and tell them to turn around. At nine o'clock, the dance hall was closed up and everyone had gone home. The Murphys hadn't arrived by that time, It's always been accepted by those who have researched the case that, although we don't really know why these murders happened, it seems to make sense that the murder or murderers, they must have known the dance was cancelled, because the Murphys were expected to attend, and it would have stood out in the small community if the dance went ahead and they weren't there. At 5am the following morning, Daniel Murphy was the first to get up, and he went out into the kitchen and he noticed that no one else was awake, which was unusual. It was especially noticeable when he saw the horses weren't out in the paddock yet. That's when he realised that Michael, Nora and Ellen, they hadn't gotten home the night before. He woke up the other men in the house, including McNeil. McNeil was concerned about his cart, which the trio took that night. He was concerned that it had broken down because it was an old cart, The rest of the family didn't seem concerned, though, but he pushed it, and Mary Murphy, the mother, she agreed that someone should go out there and look for them. And since the rest of the family thought everything was going to be okay, that responsibility fell back on McNeil.
1: Now, there are three ways to get to Gatton from the Murphy farm, according to McNeil. And these involved either going past a creek, which is the back way, going past more farms or going down and around the local cemetery, which is accepted as the more common way that people would have traveled. But that morning, McNeil chose the back way past the creek. I don't know that you could read a whole lot into that, because this path did take him past the creamery, where the workers there knew Michael and the girls, and so this allowed him to ask people around there had they seen them, which no one had. He would later report that he was only about 15 minutes from the town when he noticed on the surface of the road the marks of a vehicle that he recognized as his own because the cart he had loaned them was older and one of the wheels wobbled and left a pretty distinctive track. These tracks came from the direction of the town and appeared to veer gradually from the road towards the gateway of a paddock on the left-hand side coming from Gatton. So McNeil turned around and he retraced these marks. He initially thought that maybe they had some problems and decided to spend the night at a nearby house. He went down into the paddock and looked around for a house, but he couldn't see any. So he decided to follow the tracks into the paddock instead. And these tracks went in for about half a mile So he came up on the field and saw what appeared to be three heaps of clothing, his cart, and a horse. I'll admit, when I was reading this, I wondered if he was going to say that he thought they were mannequins. But I guess probably in the 1800s, that wasn't (laughs) wasn't the thing. thing. But this time, he thought that they were asleep, which I guess is the second thing people think. He thought that maybe they had trouble getting home. There was something wrong with the cart, and they decided to just sleep in the field. It was summer, and that wouldn't have been that unusual. As he approached, he noticed that the girls' clothes were disheveled and that they had ants crawling on them. And that's when he realized that they weren't alive. He later reported he stopped three feet from the nearest body, which he originally thought was Ellen, but it actually turned out to be Nora. Her clothes were pulled up and undone, McNeil reported that he didn't get any closer, he didn't inspect the other bodies, he just got back on his horse and rode to the police station.
0: Now, as there was only one police officer at the station, and at this point, no one knows what has happened. Was it an accident? Was it murder? Was the murderer still there? The police officer arranges the owner of the nearby hotel and three of his workers to come along to help. Remember, this is something that happened in the late 1800s. We don't have contamination of a crime scene to worry about. We don't have crimes like this normally anyway. There is no forensics. There is nothing like that that would be at the forefront of the investigator's mind. But the six men go back to the crime scene. The positions of the bodies formed a rough triangle. We know that Nora was the first. She was lying on a rug she had suffered a massive blow to the left side of her head, which had shattered her skull. She was lying face down, but it was evident from the damage to her face that she'd been cut with a knife. Her hands were tied behind her back with a handkerchief, and as you said before, Charlie, her clothing had been undone and pulled up. Michael and Ellen were almost lying back to back, only about two feet apart. Ellen had also received a massive blow to the left side of her head, And also like Nora, she had her hands tied behind her back with a handkerchief. But unlike Nora, her clothing remained intact. However, semen was found on both the girls' underwear, which led to the belief that both were raped. Now, before I go any further, there were other reasons why there was a belief that the girls were raped, and these are talked about in detail in the Gatton Murders book. And there's also graphic details of all three victims' injuries, However, it was difficult enough for me to read about them, let alone talk about them here today, and it really isn't necessary for the story for either of us to talk about them in more detail. However, I will put links up in the usual places for where you can buy the book if you want to know more for yourself. Michael was killed the same way, by a massive blow to the left side of his head. His hands weren't tied, however, there was some discoloration to his wrist and that did lead to the belief that his hands were tied up at some point. He was holding a closed purse with some change inside. Seaman was also found on Michael, and due to other injuries found on him, the police at the time believed that he was also raped. However, due to lack of forensics back then, obviously there was nothing done to see if it was Michael Seaman or not. And I did read that even in non-fatal spinal injuries, a man may ejaculate. So it's possible that the semen was Michael's, and it was just a byproduct of the injuries causing his death. Now there was some debate if Michael was indeed hit in the head like the girls, or shot, because there seemed to be a small bullet wound near his ear. But the original autopsy couldn't find the bullet, and there wasn't any exit hole, so it was decided that he was killed in the same manner as the girls, by a massive blow to the head. And at the third point of the triangle, about 30 feet from where Nora's body was found, was the cart with a broken right shaft. And beside the cart, with the harness still attached, was the horse. And that horse's name was Tom, and he was found with a single bullet wound to the forehead. That wound would have killed him instantly, if that's any consolation. William McNeil didn't stay at the crime scene for long. It wouldn't have been more than five minutes before he returned to the Murphy farm to tell the family of the discovery. He got back to the Murphy farm. It was about 11am by this stage. McNeil was later described as being excited and restless and walking about rapidly. But look, I don't see anything wrong with this. I think adrenaline would have played a big part at this stage and I don't see anything suspicious with his behaviour.
1: The police officer who was there, I don't think we mentioned his name yet. It is Sergeant Errol. With the panic and the rush he left the station with, he didn't take his notebook with him to record anything. After he examined the bodies and the crime scene for about a half hour, he returned to the station to wire a report to the police commissioner and to lodge a request for an aboriginal tracker which we know from even more modern-day cases that we've talked about, like William Tyrrell and Azaria Chamberlain's disappearance, this is something that is used to find evidence of someone there, directions they may have left or come from, or just possibly more evidence. But before he left the crime scene, Errol had two of the men there stay and make sure no one else would go near the bodies. He marked his request to the commissioner as urgent, but after not hearing back for about two hours, he returned to the paddock. When he got there, we basically have a Villisca axe murder situation. If you remember from that story, it was a gory murder in a small town. And just like in Villisca, in this case, the news spread quickly and crowds arrived to look and investigate the crime scene for themselves. When Arrow left, there were only a few men gathered at the scene, and he left two men to guard it, but let's face it, these two men didn't really have any authority, and the crowd eventually grew to around 40 people. They really had no chance of stopping anyone from walking around the scene. Any possible tracks from the murderer were obscured and gone, and tracks here would have been extremely important. Multiple footprints could tell us that there were more than one attacker. Additional wheel marks could tell us if the attacker or attackers had their own transportation or if they were on foot. It could, of course, have told us which direction they fled in. So when he arrived back at the scene, he didn't have any better luck controlling these crowds. He could get them to back up for a minute and retreat, but then his attention would get diverted. Someone would be talking to him or he'd be looking at something and the people would be right back to walking up on the scene, touching things, moving things. Errol would later make an official complaint about the lack of support he received during this time from the town's magistrates. Not just this moment, but during pretty much the whole of the investigation. Equally frustrating, he did get his notebook when he had gone back to the station, and he did take notes when he got back to the scene but his notebook would later go missing and it has never been found.
0: During the search of the crime scene, there was some items found and recorded. A canvas shoe was found in the mud nearby and there were hints that this was the big breakthrough to solve the case, but nothing ever came of it. Close to where the Murphys were found were also a short piece of fishing line, a small black tin button that seemed to be from a button from a pair of pants, a lead pencil that was issued from the local railway, a heavy branch that is believed to be the murder weapon, and of course the bullet casing of a 380 cartridge that was most likely from when the horse was killed. Now the reason the Commission's Investigation Bureau, or the CBI, the reason they never responded to the urgent request, was there was a belief that this was actually a hoax. And by the time it was confirmed that this is the real deal, It was several days later before the CBI arrived in Gatton. And it wasn't until January 5, so almost two weeks after the murders, that the CBI took over the investigation. And setting all this up in a small town was a massive task because of the equipment they needed they weren't fully operational for almost another week, so we're talking what two and a half, three weeks that had gone past without a fully functional investigation. Add on to that the missing crime scene notes and the contamination of the crime scene. The whole thing was a mess from the beginning. And this all caused panic and unsettle within the community. They saw it as a lack of protection the police were providing them, Things were already unstable because of the gangs of young men causing mischief, and there were some thoughts that one of these gangs were responsible for the murders, especially when they were asked to cooperate by lending horses and searching, and they refused to assist the investigation.
1: They weren't the only ones who refused to assist. The Murphys themselves refused to help the investigators. The investigators even attempted to hire their horses, only for them to refuse. They were really distancing themselves away from the investigation. When the Murphys were later questioned about any enemies or what they thought might have happened, both parents would have referred to the murderers in the plural, meaning they did believe that there were more than one. They both said they knew who was responsible but refused to name names, and they believed the lives of their other children, perhaps themselves, were also in danger, and, Quote unquote, they did not want any more lives lost over the affair. What affair? We'll talk about that in a bit. The CIB were not happy with the cause of death of Michael Murphy and they questioned the method of the autopsy. They ordered Michael's body to be exhumed for further investigation. And because of the Murphys' indifference, I guess you might say, to the investigation, it must have taken all their powers of persuasion to get them to agree to even do this. I mean, an exhumation can be a pretty big deal for a lot of people. But they agreed, and in the second autopsy, a three hundred eighty bullet was found, which was the same type of bullet that had killed the horse. Being that he was the only one of the three shot, I personally believe that he was shot first to subdue him so the attack on the women wouldn't be stopped, I mean, he was a 29-year-old farm worker and a distinguished infantryman. He would have fought back. So I think doing the second autopsy and finding that bullet was very important to understanding how this attack happened and the sequence of events. So it's really unfortunate that they didn't find it the first time. And it's
0: also a shame that the CBI didn't get involved until so long after the fact, because if that was picked up earlier, I mean, who knows what difference it would have
1: made. Of course, the police received thousands of letters from the public during the investigation. Some were anonymous, some were signed, and there was the usual parade of psychics describing the murders in detail and where they could be found. The newspapers got a hold of these letters and they would publish them. There wasn't a lot of movement in the investigation, but the public was obsessed with the details of the case. And I think we see that today with the 24-hour news cycle They only have so much to report, so they really have to stretch it out. These letters gave them something to report, no matter how far-fetched they were. And I assume selling papers is the main reason these letters were made public, but it also put a lot of rumors out there that then had to be sifted through.
0: At least 17 letters were received with the theory that there were an insensuous relationship going on within the Murphy family, and the main target of these rumours were pointed towards the father, Daniel Murphy. And I mean, this would be reason alone for me to say that I understand why the Murphys would close ranks and not cooperate with the investigation, because of the unfair and unfound scrutiny placed on them, and the little protection the investigators provided to the family. And this incest theory was further supported by the media by the report of a witness who claimed to have heard a woman's voice scream father at the same time and from the same direction as the shots she heard on the night of the murders.
1: I also think that some of the people who believed the incest theory believed it because they had all these adult children who were not married and that the family seemed very anti them getting married, didn't approve of any of their matches. But I was reading, and one thing I have to say about this case, I think you finally broke me. You found a case where there was just too much information (laughs) for me to process. But I was reading what I could of this information, and it seemed that it was really the mom who drove this no-one-was-going-to-be-good-enough-for-her-children kind of controlling matriarch thing that prevented them from getting married. But I think that also gave some people weight to the incest theory because why else would a large family not want to be marrying off all these children?
0: And we'll get more into it in a bit, but Michael went everywhere with the girls and they were very affectionate family. That further pushed those rumors.
1: Another theory is that the motive was revenge. It didn't take long for this theory to become one of the more popular ones. Rumors came out that Michael Murphy's character wasn't quite as clean and spotless as the Murphys wanted everyone to believe with their public, pious personas. If that's true, it may be why they took a step back from the investigation as well. Perhaps they did have a feeling what led to this crime, and they did not want their family's name embroiled in an additional scandal over it. The rumors were unsubstantiated, but there was talk around town that Michael and his brothers were getting local girls pregnant and then refusing to marry them, which doesn't mean a lot today, but in 1898, in a religious community, it meant a lot, a a whole lot. And it could lead a father or a brother, perhaps to get revenge. So one of these women who gets brought into this was named Katie, and she had two older brothers. However, by... All reports, Michael did offer to marry her. It was the rest of his family that was against the pairing. Mrs. Murphy disagreed with pretty much every pairing of any of her other children. That's why she had all these unmarried children. So that wasn't surprising that she objected. Unfortunately, Katie died in what has been recorded as a fit, possibly related to epilepsy. So we're going to get a little deeper in the mud here with the rumors. Being pregnant and unwed was looked down on at this time. Michael was unable to convince his family to approve the marriage. And again, while family approval isn't that big of a thing now, it was then. Abortions were illegal, but we all know that didn't mean that they didn't happen. And one of the most common causes of death from abortion complications, particularly in a time before we all got tetanus shots, was tetanus. And tetanus is an infection that causes muscle spasms, and they would look a lot like a massive seizure. If this was the case with Katie, I don't think she would want the hospital to know because this was a crime to have gotten an abortion. So then when she later died, they were assuming it was from natural causes because they didn't know that she had had an abortion. But her family may have known what happened, particularly her brothers, which would encourage the revenge theory for this reason even more.
0: Now, while there were no bounds placed on the Murphy boys, as long as they went to church, worked hard, and didn't marry Protestants, their parents were happy. The same couldn't be said about the girls. They had to live within tight boundaries to what was considered respectable. Now, Nora was known as a responsible woman. As you said before, Charlie, she shouldered most of the domestic labor and was the primary carer for Polly's children. But despite being 27, she still had to ask her mother's permission to go anywhere. Nora and Ellen couldn't even ride their horses down the paddock alone. They had to take one of their brothers with them. However, none of that stopped Nora. She did date several men. She had a feud going on with a local school teacher, Julia Gleeson. And some of the things that she did was write letters to the local newspaper saying Julia was pregnant She would also dress up as a ghost and throw rocks on Julia's roof. Now, because of this, Julia later allegedly became insane, and her sister had apparently vowed revenge on the Murphy family. And another angle on the revenge theory was that Michael was a popular fencing and road worker contractor, and the reason he was so popular was because he undercut rivals, which obviously made him some enemies. Now, to me, it seems too much of an overkill to be a lust-type killing in this case. It seems to me to be an act of vengeance. Probably the murderers didn't intend to go quite as far as they did. And the fact that the act of rape, that isn't generally an act of sexual desire, but rather of crime of violence, hatred, and power. To me, this seems like another form of violent revenge. So I do think revenge is definitely a plausible theory in this case.
1: Of all the mysterious events connected to this, the one of the most strange ones is the sightings of a man near where the Murphys' cart went off the road. Not one sighting, not one eyewitness, we're talking about six. He was seen walking in both directions, and it was reported that he looked like he was waiting for someone. From where he was standing, he would have had a clear view down the road in both directions for about half a mile. He was reported by several people as wearing a felt hat pulled down over his face. There were reports he was wearing a coat, which that would have stood out because this is the middle of summer in Queensland. But then I read other contemporary news articles that he was wearing a shirt or a blue sweater. Uh, I don't know how they would know what color it was because it would have been dark at this point. And it was probably almost only moonlight we're talking about here. It was also reported that he was carrying a small, dark object in his hand. The times he was seen, they varied between 8.25 p.m. and 9.25 p.m. And there were reports of gunfire and a woman screaming about 9.45 or 10 p.m., again in the direction from where the Murphys were found. But despite widespread news coverage and so many people being questioned by police, this man was never identified and he didn't come forward. The fact that the man made little effort to conceal himself from passersby, that says to me that he wasn't a local because he wasn't concerned about being recognized, so I think we can agree to that. Since we are talking about three victims who received extensive injuries, it definitely sounds to me like there were two attackers, if not more. Even if Michael was killed almost immediately, it's unlikely one man subdued both of the girls. It was reported that at least one of the girls appeared to have fought back really hard. I think the person who attacked them, personally, I think they were waiting near the paddock or maybe a ditch waiting for their target. And I do think the Murphys were specifically targeted. I don't think this was a random attack. Whether all three of them were the targets or just any of the Murphys would do, I can't say but I think they were ambushed by two or more attackers who were waiting specifically for them.
0: But for this strange man to be connected with the murder and for the Murphys to be a target, I mean, how would he have known they were going to ride past because they were supposed to be at the Gatton Dance that night? And we're talking about a drastic difference in time here. We're looking at, what, 8.30 in comparison to 4 in the morning, which was the time that they would have been coming home if they went to the dance. The only answer I have to this is that the dance was possibly deliberately sabotaged in advance. Either the person or people involved were part of convincing other people not to go, or maybe they just heard that people weren't attending and they knew it was going to be a failure. Maybe this was just a backup plan to make sure the murderers didn't miss them. Regardless, to me, as you said, it does show that this was all planned in advance. There was no way this was an optimistic, last-minute thing. It seems to me this was definitely a premeditated attack. And all of this brings us to who is considered the lead suspect in the murders, William McNeil. There is some thought that he had fallen in love with Nora, basically because she was a great pseudo-mother to his children. And then when she rejected his advances and was being friendly with other men, he killed her along with her brother and sister out of jealousy. Another story that was popular at the time was not long before Christmas. There was a fight that had taken place between Michael and McNeil. It was said that Polly had been taken to church by her sisters a few weeks previously. And then when she arrived home, a fight broke out between her and McNeil. This was because she was forbidden to go to the Catholic church her family went to. Michael, of course, took his sister's side and a fist fight between him and Michael broke out. Because, as we know, the relationship between McNeil and the Murphys, it was obviously not a friendly one. No one seemed to like him, and no one called him by his first name. And that further backs up the thought that it is very possible no one talked to him on the night of the murders. And the theory that McNeil was involved was further backed up by the suspicions of investigators at the time, mainly because of three factors. One, because he was anxious to find them first, he was concerned long before anyone else was. Secondly, because he saw the tracks on his way into Gatton. And then finally, when he saw the bodies, he didn't go to have a look to see what happened. I mean, how did he know they weren't still alive and in desperate need for immediate attention? He just assumed they were dead without checking. And how would he know that unless he was directly involved?
1: I think McNeil is a viable suspect. I think some of the judgments on how he was acting after the murder, they're being made by people who already don't like him. So uh, uh, it's kind of hard to put a whole lot of weight into it. They just lost three family members. And putting suspicion on a guy they don't like, I mean, I can see how that happened.
0: He isn't really the most likable of characters, but... To me, there is nothing that indicates to me in this story that he was involved. There's no evidence there. As far as we know, he was there at the house all night. People saw him at different times throughout the night. I don't see how he could have traveled the half hour to get to the place to murder the Murphys and then get back and no one noticed anything. Especially when it seemed Nora did fight back so much to get scratches or cuts over her face you think he would have had some injuries as well
1: yeah I agree with the amount of fighting back it looked like she did I think he would have shown injuries and they would have seen them as soon as that morning and would have wondered why he had them I also don't think one person did this and I can't see who he would have had as his accomplice
0: I mean he had his brother George but again if there were injuries on either one of them, it definitely would have been reported.
1: Another suspect who's a favorite with armchair sleuths is Thomas Day. Now, Day is also known as Theo Farmer or Thomas Ferner. Day was new to the area and had only just been employed by the local butcher in the weeks before the murder. It has been reported that Day was lurking near the murder scene on the night of the killings, But he insisted he was home alone and reading a book all night, and he never left his room in the shed he was living in. And this place he was living, it was pretty close to the scene of the murder. The police did question him, and they found out he had a bloodstained sweater, which they told him not to wash, but of course he washed it. Three weeks after the murder, he left town, and no one in the town saw him again. He enlisted in the military, but deserted in mid-1899. He resurfaces on the records in 1900 when he was admitted to Sydney Hospital, and he was admitted under the name of Thomas Ferner. He later died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. At the inquest of his death, a suicide note was written in pencil, and it was admitted to the inquest because it was found on him. According to newspaper reports, it essentially was him admitting to being there when the murders occurred and that he couldn't live with the nightmares he had. He also mentioned that the case was meant to be kept quiet among the police. So was he implying he had some knowledge of a cover-up? Maybe.
0: Now, there was another murder that happened in Oxley, which is about an hour from Gatton. However, and due to strong evidence coupled with some circumstantial evidence... It is believed that both murders were carried out by the same person. We have a similar style killing and same lack of motive being the most standout similarities. 15-year-old Alfred Hill was a quiet, shy, mature for his age kind of kid. His dad was a lawyer and he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps. So he was just a focused, good kid. On Saturday, December 10, he left his parents home to spend the weekend with his aunt and uncle at their farm. He rode his horse leaving at 2pm and was expected to get there by nightfall and then return home on the Monday. When he didn't get home as planned on the Monday, his parents were alarmed but then they reasoned between themselves that he must have just decided to stay at the farm an extra day. They continued to wait throughout Tuesday, but when they still hadn't seen him by the Wednesday, they travelled to the farm themselves, and that's when they found out that he never actually arrived. On January 6, 1899, a father and son were out searching the bush for gum, which they used in their tanning business, and they came across what looked like the decomposed remains of a horse. Now, this isn't usually a big deal, but since the horse was still wearing its saddle, the father thought it was important to report it.
1: The following day, the body of Alfred Hill was found 200 yards from his horse. The sad thing was it wasn't the police who found the body. It was the search party organized by his family. They had been continuously searching since they realized Alfred had been missing.
0: And I couldn't imagine what it was like if just to find... I mean, it's a small town. It's possible they knew Alfred. And then to find the body, devastating.
1: It's pretty likely whoever found him knew him. He was found near a camping group, which was screened from the road by dense bush. Alfred was covered thickly with branches and was described in contemporary news articles as being so badly decomposed that his head had separated from his torso. It was evident that he had been shot... And it was behind his right ear, just like Michael Murphy. And just like the Murphy murders, the horse had been shot through the forehead. A difference here, his clothing was undisturbed. And he was positioned in a certain way with the straw hat tucked under his arm. There was no sign of any sexual assault being committed. There was an arrest in this case. Edward Wilson was a middle-aged homeless man who was known to be out shooting birds in the area at the time Alfred was suspected to have been murdered. He admitted as much to bar patrons soon after that he had been in the area. He was arrested and tried for the murder. But due to the lack of evidence, and by lack of evidence, I honestly mean no evidence, the Crown had nothing, They except that he was in the area shooting birds at the same time, And that's how they tied him to the crime. But he was found not guilty. And Wilson's case also remains unsolved over 100 years later.
0: Look, I'm not convinced these cases are linked. Besides the gunshot wound, nothing else matches up to me. The Gatton murders do seem more personal. And Alfred could have easily been a random robbery gone wrong or a wrong place, wrong type, type scenario.
1: A big thing that stands out to me is that alfred's murder was a single gunshot wound what happened to the murphys was extremely it was an extremely violent attack yes and so they don't seem to even be coming from the same type of murderer let alone the same exact person
0: we're talking three grown people versus a teenager exactly but look, I don't know, this whole thing, it does scream out to me of someone who was possibly killed before. The ritualistic positioning of the bodies and the overkill, as well as the unnecessarily killing the horse, I just don't think it was this person or person's first killing. And as I said, I'm not convinced it was the same killer or killers in the Oxley murder, but... I definitely think the Gatton murderer had killed before or at the very least committed some kind of sexually motivated crime. It feels like an escalation of sorts to me.
1: This case, as I was reading about it and reading the various theories, because we just talked about the most popular suspects, but it seems every few years a new author, a new blogger will publish a new article or a new book laying out their evidence of a new suspect. So it feels a lot like the Jack the Ripper style case. Yes. That we're too late for evidence, we're too late for confessions, we'll likely never know what happened, but we do have people out there who are still sifting through the information and trying to come up with a logical deduction of who it is. And and since I mentioned Jack the Ripper, I'm going to say it, there's a book coming out that will lay out the case for Thomas Day being the culprit of the Gatton murders and also being Jack the Ripper. Of course. So... Maybe both mysteries have the same solution. Who knows? But this case is very much a Jack the Ripper case where there is a new suspect or new deductions made from old evidence on who did it coming out every few years. it, Like I said, Ally pretty much broke me with this case. There was just too much information.
0: There is a very, and I'll say thorough, but I don't know if that's the right word, but there's a very thorough website about the Gatton murders that... I will link to in the usual places, but you can easily get, you can easily get lost in that for months. Okay. So some thank yous. Firstly, to our patrons on Patreon. Thank you to Margaret M., Jake and Sam, Christy H., Morgan C., and the fabulous and amazingly talented Nina from the Already Gone podcast, who, Charlie, you already had the pleasure of meeting before, but I got to meet Nina for the first time at CrimeCon and she's honestly one of the nicest people in podcasting she had an already gone tote that an equally as amazing listener who flew all the way from australia with her mum friend so hello friend friend was admiring this tote and nina just gave it to her and that's just typical of the person nina is and then to the beautiful five star reviews thank you to rusty sarah x shines brit 910 Sean Boily T. Tukey and Robin Gospel Hymns. You guys are the best. We are on Facebook. We have the page where we post all the episodes and a discussion group, which is exactly that. It's a private group where we discuss episodes, documentaries, other podcasts we listen to and any other case that anyone is interested in. We are on Twitter where you can chat to Charlie and that's at InsightfulPod. I post photos on Instagram, and that's at insightpod, and we both respond to the emails insightfulpod at gmail.com. Now, we do get a lot of emails, and it may take us some time to get back to you, but we do answer everyone. We have a PayPal for a one-off donation and a Patreon for an ongoing monthly donation. On Patreon, we do have some great rewards for our patrons, like a monthly bonus episode, stickers, magnets, t-shirts... And a lovely thank you card from Charlie. All links for these are on our website, insightpod.com. And you can listen to all our episodes there and read our show notes and access some additional research if you want to read up some more. And finally, it would mean the world to us if you would rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. It really does help spread the word and keeps us coming back every week. Thank you. And we will see you all soon.